Welcome to the 79th episode of the OpVac cast. Uh, this is, of course, the podcast on the Optimism Vaccine Podcast Network that, I don't know, plunges the depths between pop culture and forgotten trash. And, uh, you know, we talk TV, we talk movies. And if you've been listening for the past two months, we've come to the conclusion that no media is actually good. Everything is terrible and the world should burn. And joining me today, uh, I've got Agnes Varda's former hairstylist, Sean Glynis. <laughs> Hello. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you, Steve? Pretty good. How uh, rock hard are you right now for the new Criterion channel? Uh, oh, boy. I wasn't expecting this kind of question. Um, somewhere between a, a gemstone and a um, stalagmite. I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was an actual range. What are you talking gemstone here? What are you, a cubic zirconium or are you a diamond? I uh, know gemstones have a wide variance. That's, that's pretty broad. We could, we could do a full gemstone scale alone. Uh, towards the bottom of that scale. The bottom of the scale. Okay. So that, so, that, even that's unclear. I don't know if bottom <laughs> represents know. hardness or softness. Let's but, move on. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to think more about this scale. We're going to come back to this later. Uh, also joining us, it's the uh, leader of the right-wing intellectual dark web, Adam Myros. Well, maybe maybe like fifteen years ago. <laughs> All right. So you're not uh, you're not who, who do they who's in that the 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 Yang Gang? Yeah, you got the, the Peterson people, the Yang Gang. You got uh, Dave Rubin. You got all, all your favorites. The Yang Gang is particularly perplexing, considering he seems to just be some guy who wants a universal basic income. Uh, I don't yeah. know why the the, the Trump troglodytes have latched out to him. It's you, bizarre. You know why, events. right? You oh, okay? So here's I why. I do not. No. It's very simple, actually. So all, all the Trump troglodytes they they have no actual ideology. Okay, so they don't they don't care. They're just nihilistic. And they like the idea of a universal basic income because these troglodytes, at least like the under 30 ones, they're all gamers. So in their minds, they're like, okay, I get $1,000 a month. I live in my mom's basement anyway. Now I can fully commit to gaming as, as a life, and that's it. And they're just never going to leave the basement now. Because the only reason they would before is to you know, work some super shitty part-time job that they hated. And then they would go home and spend the rest of their time gaming. Now they don't need to do that part. There's no reason to leave. There's, you know, DoorDash exists. You don't have to get food from anywhere. When Even when mom's not around, DoorDash will bring you food. Uh, you got your Mountain Dew supply. You're good to go. What else do you need? This is, it's the future, as foretold. As foretold by the Yang Gang. This, yeah, that's good, man. Uh, so, yeah, just uh, get a Pepe meme tattooed on your chest. Get I ready. mean, you might want to you might want to angle for something a little more than a thousand dollars, but that's that's not going to go far. I mean, but uh, what do you? How much? How much can you possibly eat in a day? And then you just got to pay for video games. Uh, maybe more than a thousand. What if I get fifteen hundred? Maybe. Uh, well, I mean, as someone in favor uh, to an extent of universal basic income, I, I think maybe we should start at two thousand dollars. That's good. I like your progressive thoughts here. Sure. Well, that way they they can get into VR and stuff too. Like they don't have to be limited to last generation consoles or underperforming PCs, right? 
This is true, and, and they have all those uh, deluxe editions. It can get to be a pretty pricey habit. Yeah, it can be. It can be. I mean, now you can buy the, the $300 uh, Fallout 76 package that comes with a canvas bag or something. It's good. Hey, they're refunding the canvas bag for a better bag or something. I don't fucking do it's, Yeah, this is, this is good. Always pay at least $300 for, like, chintzy plastic toys that come with your video games. That's something I learned from Sean Glynnis a long time ago. That's right. I'm sure, Sean, you're always, you're always uh, shelling out the big bucks for the NBA 2K versions that come with, like, a mini basketball and it costs $400. Does, does that actually happen? Um, I don't know if that has happened specifically, but it probably will happen. That's, you know, it's prophecy, baby. That's how it goes. There, hey, yeah. There's definitely a deluxe edition of uh, NBA 2K19, because I saw that the, the, the current version is on sale on the Switch for $60, which would presumably be the price of the normal game, so it must come with yeah, some other load of horse shit to be yeah, considered mini, like mini half basketball. off at $60. All that DLC that you need for a basketball game, so you can yes. play as, like, Dr. J or something, or get the uh, the Milwaukee Bucks mecha court from the early 1980s. I'm sure that the mecha court is similar to what they do. You know, you get uh, various uniforms and hairstyles for your creative player and stuff that was in every video game when we were in college, and, and now they just <laughs> charge you a dollar yeah, for back it. back in my day, you just you went on, uh, what, what was the site, like Sega Codes or something? Was, was that <laughs> it? It was Sega something, and then you just searched codes, and you could get all that stuff? Ooh. Nope. Not anymore. You pay for everything. There are no cheat codes. You just yeah, pay for you cheat put codes in a, now. A cheat code. It's called your fucking credit card now. Oh damn! Yeah, that's called, yeah, it's called Mom's Visa. That's so depressing. I, uh, the last thing I used the cheat code on was uh, when I played Red Dead Redemption, like a decade after everyone had finished it, um, <laughs> and cheat codes worked. That's how I enjoyed that game. Oh well, those those days are gone. I, I do think they should adopt some sort of DLC model for what is uh, DLC? Like movie theaters, uh, downloadable content, which is just it's like things that should be included in a video game, but instead they just they leave them out and then try and sell it to you later. Gotcha. That's that's basically it. But like, you know, if if there's all kinds of terrible nerds who are just like, oh, I have to wait until after the credits so I can see my stupid after credit sequence for my shitty superhero movie, uh, I think they should have to pay an extra five dollars for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then if I could pay an extra five dollars so I don't need to be around people like them, like I, I would I would pay extra for a private booth in my movie theater, I think. Give me the uh, DLC. That seems like a pretty expensive proposition. I don't know if you could spend five dollars to make that worth the Yeah, that, that might be the deluxe edition. <laughs> It's probably going to happen though. Just watch. Like you get you get like a download code for extra like Avengers bloopers or something, so you can see Captain America drop his shorts or some stupid shit. This is all. This is the future. Movies I, are going to go the way of video games. It may be the future of VR as well. That that'll put you into your own booth and you can simulate the theater experience. Oh, that's right. Chris You're Evans, your all up in my shit. Yeah, that's what I need. Oh God, am I? Am I? You think I'm really going to see another Avengers movie? Is that going to happen to me? Probably. I mean, I, you saw Shazam. <laughs> God. You're gonna go see the three-hour thing? Like, I, I no, I, I mean, at this point, it's like, no, but I, I it's just gonna happen. I, uh, I can't control it. It's just something in my life that just happens. I don't it's just understand. The last one. Like, when you've seen like twenty other of the things, at some point, you just you gotta finish the fucking. Thing. <laughs> you gotta finish it. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's like, it's like this movie, I, you could just be like, well, I, I, I did it. I don't have to watch anymore. <laughs> you know, I yeah, was this, watching... this happens to me with TV shows all the time where, you, where, you know, it starts off and you're like, oh, this is kind of intriguing. And then you watch like three episodes. You're like, I don't know if I like where this is going. And you get so invested. You're like, well, I guess I just have to finish it. You know, like Game uh, right. of Thrones. I'm going to watch the last season. I haven't enjoyed like the last four seasons, but it's just I, I've gotten this far. I, I have to finish it. I suppose. And, I, I can't say as someone who like the last Marvel movie I saw in the theaters was like the first Guardians. Um, I can't really speak to, to, to that like compulsion. But um, man, you know, like I was I, I, I watched this um, this movie. The River's Edge, just like this fifty late fifties cinemascope adventure, like color noir thing, um, <clears throat> this weekend, and it's it's just it's just a genre movie, you know. It's just something. It's one hundred twenty seven, or it's it's eighty seven minutes long, and it, it's it's just this little yarn, and it's just like almost every shot is like beautifully composed or the sets are, are great the color, like the lighting and i was like this is a this is just a movie that came out in the 50s this is a movie that just dropped in and it was like this is what you can go see at the theater this weekend it wasn't a prestige thing it wasn't like something that was going to garner any oscars it just came out and watching it now like when you think about fucking Shazam like the the level of craftsmanship is is just uh it's really depressing, man. Uh, and Shazam is 132 minutes. Exactly. I and then you put on, <laughs> and then you add on three what? hours for the, like, I just don't, I, I, I'm completely disconnected from, from the idea of being able to care about that stuff or being able to just not, like, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of depressed about that fact, but. Yeah, it seems like a weird complaint because people are like, oh, well, you'll sit down and you'll watch a Tarkovsky movie that's three and a half hours long. Why can't you give the same to a Marvel film? And, I mean, I can. And, and the thing is with a lot of the Marvel films, too, is even when they're long, just the way that they pace things, you you sort of... It's not to say they don't feel long sometimes, but the way they're paced, you just kind of get through it. And... I don't know though. Like they they get worse and worse though. So like the last Avengers movie, it's it's a real uh, the 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 one with the 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 snap and the whatnot. It's it's a real watch checking film. I um, mean, I can but, watch Lord of the Rings. That's three hours. Each of them are three hours. That's not Tarkovsky. Yeah. You know, like I have no issue I, watching those. Yeah. Oh, see, I, no, I, I give me a comic book movie with that fucking shit in it. Yeah. Get your fucking dirty bare feet off my fucking cinema screen. I'm not saying yeah, I, I'm I don't. I don't need it. the gnomes I'm walking around. I don't know. It's just, but but the the question that I that is raised in my head is a lot of times, even when they feel long, but not as long as they actually are. You're like, and eh, it's dragging a little bit, but it doesn't feel like you're just you know plopped down for God knows how long. You have to ask yourself, does it need to be this long? And nine times out of ten, the answer is a resounding, absolutely not. This should not be this long. And even with the with the new Avengers movie that's coming out at the end of the month, it's like, oh, it's three and a half hours long. It's like, well, that's obscene. Why not just have two movies? Won't you make more money? Just shoot it end to end. Yeah, sure. They could have just made this this thing three movies. And yeah. then you'd have Why not like do some that? reasonably uh, sized movies. Because, I mean, as much as the content is purposeless it, it, there is such a they've 
they have endeavored to cram so much into this thing that it does need to be that long. They're they're literally like trying to serve the fans of like fucking twelve franchises or something. So it it, it gets to the point where they have to include all this content. But yeah, there's there's no reason why it needs to be two movies. I think one of the things that I find so unappealing about it um, is just like the sort of squeaky clean like filmmaking by commission thing like it just it sounds so um mechanical Mm -hmm. well and that's the that's the problem too with a film like shazam or something and and here's a character where it's not like this is a big character that people are familiar with even in a passing way like you say shazam and then people confuse it with kazam and then it's the whole hotel affected thing yeah yeah, now, yeah, that's pure cinema, Kazam. But, you know, they think, oh, is that is that Sinbad in the Genie movie? It's like, no, no, it was Shaq in a Genie movie. That was Kazam. But people don't know what Shazam is, and yet you feel the need to make this, like, two-and-a-half-hour-long slog that retreads every superhero origin story uh, that you could possibly imagine. Barf, it's basically my like, brain's out. what if... Yeah, well, and, and that's the whole thing. It's like, what if... Spider-Man's origin story was dragged out forever and also with the least compelling people and a bunch of children that you want to strangle. Like, I've, I've never wanted to kill a child more in my entire life than when I was watching Shazam. It was just infuriating. That's because that's, that's what this movie is. It's like, oh, look at these, you know, rambunctious orphans. And, uh, oh, one of them becomes a superhero for literally no reason at all. And then we have to watch him struggle with being a teen boy but also a superhero man at the same time and at the end of the day it's just like no all 13 year olds are dicks and this superhero is a dick and the lesson is i don't know if you've heard this one guys with great power comes great responsibility i i don't know if you have you heard that oh news to me news to you yeah it's it's, it's a waste it doesn't do anything it doesn't push anything forward and I don't. It's mind-boggling to me that people still eat this shit up. You know, yeah. like clearly there's there's this Marvel and DC fan base that just wants this shit, and you can you know take a dump in a bucket and call it Aquaman, and someone will go out and see it. But to, to the average person, I don't know. Like, why does Shazam need to exist? What is the point of bringing this into my life? It's it's not funny. It's not compelling. It's not interesting. There's 9,000 other superhero movies. We're literally getting one or two superhero movies a month. Why does this need to be here? And it just well, it doesn't. <laughs> consider this. And I, I mean, obviously, if you're reading some fucking den of geek or some shit, you've obviously heard it. But it, it, just think of the absurdity that right now in theaters, it, two of the top five uh, grossing films of last weekend were about various characters named Captain Marvel. That's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 sad and it, the more I talk about it the more I'm only going to sound like a miserable old man uh mm. but it's just like can I be happy that these people are are getting like I don't even care that fans that like you know fans go eat the shit up whatever like I don't get it but like when I, you know, we talked last episode about criticism. When criticism criticism becomes just like fan culture, it fucking sucks. Yeah, 
I just, I don't get it. Nobody's a fucking fan of Shazam. That comic probably sells like a hundred issues a month or something ridiculous. Why yeah. is this pop culture all of a sudden? Why is it in, inherent that everyone's going to go see fucking Shazam? I, no yeah. one buys the comics anymore. Well, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me why this is keeps happening. I mean, sure. Marvel did this thing where it snowballed and you feel obliged to go see everything. And that is coming to an end, and I'd like to think that would herald some shift in the movement. But no, it's it's just yeah. an endless monolith. It seems. Yeah, like. I, I wish well, Shazam too. It, it it really taps into two of my least favorite things that find their way into into superhero movies. Well, I mean, I guess my number one least favorite thing was when it when they go all like you know grim, dark, serious business on us, and, and it's like, dude, you're you're a guy in like his underwear and a cape. Let's not get too serious here. Uh, but the other things that I hate is uh, this weird, like, I, I guess, like, the, the Deadpool, like, fourth wall breaking type of humor. Uh, but in Shazam, they take that and they just sanitize it completely. So it's it's not particularly smart. And it doesn't have the novelty that, the like, the original Deadpool may have had as a superhero movie and there's no, like, you know, over-the-top violence or over-the-top, you know, swearing or anything for the shock value. It's just kind of this, like, wink and a nudge thing. And it's it's grating. It's the worst humor ever. It's the kind of thing where you, you get, like, embarrassed for what's happening on screen and you just kind of, like, recoil <laughs> in your seat. And then it's also just schmaltzy as hell because... It's about, like, a, a band of orphans. Like, we're watching our gang here, and it's 1930, and it's like, oh, you know, family, it's it's not who your biological mother is. It's the, it's the family that you adopt for your own, and the people who love you, and blah, blah, blah. And literally, over the, this movie takes place over the course of, like, maybe three or four days, where this kid gets placed in an orphanage, and he decides that, like, the four other kids in the... In the uh, the orphanage are like his new family now and he loves them and we're all best friends like this is not how relationships develop it's just it's insane it's absolutely insane it's i i can't figure it out and maybe i am just getting old is that the problem am i <laughs> i can't oh, no. see this as like a wide-eyed child uh. i don't i don't think that's the problem because the problem is that this movie's been made 75 times in the last decade, and I'm fucking mm -hmm. tired of it. And everything looks the same and is the same, and stop being the fucking same. Yeah. And yeah. stop giving it 95% positive reviews for the same fucking pile of paste over and over <laughs> again. What the fuck is happening? That's you know good. what I, I, uh, I was remembering when we, when we mentioned Kazam? Did you know that there was a tie-in candy bar like that really... Like a candy bar that the movie made up that only existed in the universe, and then they created it for the market. Do you guys remember that? No, I, I didn't know that. that. See, that's interesting. I get behind that. Yeah, this, well, see, this was a time when that alone <laughs> makes it better than Shazam. This is this is a time, Steve, where uh, capitalism hadn't gotten as good as it is now. Like at being <laughs> capitalist. Um, yeah, just think about that. In our lifetime, there was a, a time when a summer blockbuster was. A basketball player. <laughs> hey, Uncle playing Drew, a genie. Yeah, yeah, that that was yeah. the movie they made. And last year, and, look at Uncle Drew. It just uh, you know, it, like 
I think it made money, but you know, it wasn't making any impressions in the suburban multiplex. Hey, you know what? We don't need basketball players uh, playing genies in movies because now we have uh, former WWE superstar Dave Batista playing cops with silly sidekicks in movies. There's two of these things coming out, One like back to back. All I know, and is- one of them is is like he he gets an Uber driver to go around and like murder people or is something. That the one with Kumail. Yeah, that's the one. And I I don't that one it's it's like an Uber pun, like it's called like Scuber St- or something. Strudler. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And then there's another one where it's just like, oh look, Dave Batista and a precocious little black girl go solve crimes together. It's fun. It's what we need. People who like Marvel movies deserve Kumail as their comedic relief movie. They do. The uh, the flaccid penis of comedy. I think that's that's his claim to fame. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just God. I I just want a blockbuster that excites me, and I I, I can't have that anymore. It's, hey, we it's had never going to happen. Well, we got us. That was a blockbuster, right? Or is that, that was a blockbuster? I guess. I mean, it was. Yeah, it, but it's funny because no one will frame it that way. But if you look at like the kind of money that it's making and the type of film that it is, yeah. it's like yeah, it's totally what it is. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and, and you know what? I en- I enjoyed it uh, quite a quite a bit actually, which is weird because you know sometimes I get caught up in how messy films can be, and they just infuriate me to no end, and I just and I can't buy in. And Us is one of the messiest films I've seen in in recent memory, but I I think it actually makes it a better movie because of that. Uh, just because. I don't know. You, you watch Get Out, and Get Out is such a, a tight script, and it's like laser focused on its themes and its plot, and everything just kind of like locks together, and you get this perfect tight little story. And with us, it's like Jordan Peele sort of blows all that up, and he's got one big overarching theme that you can read in about a thousand different ways, and then it just sort of invites you to just think about it and, and theorize and, and just play around in this negative space that the movie creates. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense. Didn't happen for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think for that me was... that, that portion where you said sometimes a messy film just kind of gets in your head and drives you nuts. Yeah. yeah that was for yeah. you? Yeah. And the thing, um, I, I think it's messy as well, but um, uh, I think the thing that I wasn't able to get from it that, I, that I'm jealous that you did, Steve, is is being able to sort of play around in in the movie because I think that's what I that's what I really lacked was like I felt like it was always um, was always moving uh, sides of the Rubik's cube to put it together or asking you to mm-hmm. and yeah um, I mean I I very much enjoyed going to see this motion picture um, and there's there's plenty to like about it but. Um, as somebody who I, who really loved uh, Get Out, I think more than than um, the rest of us probably here, um, I was just really really looking forward to this, um, and uh, ended up just being like a a good time and, and a lot of smart moments, but something that I ultimately uh, I think like Myros kind of struggle with some stuff. Yeah, uh, I I could totally see that. Like this is this is a movie that I, I think should be like by its very nature it's going to be polarizing um yeah but yeah like i i just i think for me is like the moment that i let go and stopped trying to put the pieces together and just sort of like went along with it uh and, and i think the big turning point for me was uh so when the the tethered the people from the underground if you haven't seen the movie 
Uh, you know, there's these clones that come from the underground. Why are you listening to this podcast? It, I mean, come on. It, and it came <laughs> out like three weeks ago. Just get your shit together. Go see the movie. Anyways, so when, when, the, when the tethered people, when they, when they come out and the initial family is encountered by this other family in the living room and they have this back and forth and there's this interaction that initially made me kind of groan where they basically ask, like, why are you guys doing this? And the woman, uh, the tethered woman, just kind of looks at her. Uh, I think she's Red is her name. And she just says, oh, well, we're, we're Americans. You know, that's, that's who we are. And at first I was just like, uh, come on. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, the more that I think about it, it's just like, okay, well, you, you can't, like, overthink that as necessarily like an overt, just like, political statement. Because in the world that these, these tethered people inhabit, like, their only cultural touchstone is basically a Hands Across America t-shirt. So <laughs> that's like oh. their entire philosophy is just shaped around Hands Across America. And that's great, too. And I, I love the fact that that's, that's so prominent mm-hmm. in the movie and becomes kind of like more prominent throughout the movie until the ridiculous ending. Because I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Hands Across America, but it is like the funniest shit. And it happened when... God, we, we almost have been, like, uh, just a couple years old. But it's this notorious scam, essentially, where they raised tens of millions of dollars and they only gave, like, a fraction of the money to actual charities. And then it's this ridiculous thing where they're like, yeah, if we all hold hands at the same time, then people will stop being hungry. And it's like, no, it's fucking stupid. And then also there were all these counter protests from people because they were because they they literally were trying to just like hold hands across the middle of America. So people in like Milwaukee and Minneapolis, because they were above the hand holding belt, actually staged like protests (laughs) to protest the fact that they couldn't participate in hands across America. And then also, How this does is one great protest too. such a movement. They, they just don't hold anyone's hand. They're like, yeah, well, my exa- God, I'm not, it's I'm not so touching stupid. hands with anyone today. I know. And it's like, you could still give money to charity. You could still help the hungry. And their whole thing is like, no, but we want to hold hands and, and be a part of this like news cycle bullshit. And then it gets even better because down in Hawaii, Tom motherfucking Selleck, of all people, stages a massive counter protest in Hawaii called Hawaiians are Americans too because they couldn't participate in hands across America. Was he shooting? So of, was he on set? Uh, I, I hope so. I hope he's wearing his Detroit Tigers hat that I always wear in his <laughs> Magnum PI. Uh, but yeah, just the fact that like this, this whole thing was supposed to like raise awareness and raise money for world hunger. And all it is is this giant like carnival sideshow that turns into this grotesque stupid thing where people steal charity money and then a bunch of like midwestern just bleached grimace cow people who are upset that they can't hold hands on tv uh, flip out and instead of doing something productive just complain it's it's beautiful really and how stupid it is (laughs) uh the the thing though that is weird okay so uh i think we're going to assume people have watched us or they don't I, care. I would hope so. The thing that is weird about that, though, is that isn't she, isn't the woman who says that she's not, like, she gives the speech as uh, one of these 
uh, underground dwellings, but she's not. I mean, she she was, but she also knows the opposite because she was originally this earth uh, dweller who switched places with with an underground dweller uh, with her doppelganger. So, I mean, how do you rationalize or reconcile the that that twist ending with with that stuff that happens before you know the twist? Yeah, I, I think it's it's just because. I sort of assumed that that's what happened anyways just because I don't know when they're in the the house of mirrors thing and then she she sees herself uh-huh. her, her doppelganger and then it cuts and then it's just like oh she won't talk and blah 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 and I, I think you know they're trying to tease that oh she was traumatized and in my head I'm thinking ah she probably swapped with one of these murdery people that we're going to see later based on the trailer that I've seen so I, I started putting it together from that standpoint and I guess if if you don't make that connection initially, once it becomes clear towards the end, then it gets easy to kind of just kind of walk it back to that point. But this is definitely a movie where I, I think watching it more than once probably enriches the experience. <laughs> See, so, I, uh, I think I'd have the opposite uh, reaction. I, I think a lot of what I've heard from different people who have varying degrees of issues with the movie is, is a lot of it comes down to a uh, crowd reaction. This seems to be a movie that plays really great in a in a theater, a crowded theater, you know, it, it, much as Get Out did. Uh, and I did not have the benefit of that experience. I, I saw it in a pretty empty theater. But I don't think this movie... And, and it goes to kind of what Sean's talking about, but I think on an allegorical level, too, I think... I think I would have more struggles than must if I were to watch it at home because I think mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I think it's just got a lot of things that don't add up. I mean, I think that again that that twist is just it, it's cute and I I kind of thought early in the movie the same thing you did. Uh, oh, that's a distinct possibility. There's there's really no reason to make it text. Uh, but he doesn't write around that. He doesn't. He doesn't write as if that was his intention. Again, when when we're introduced to these tethered, she specifically Lupita Nyong'o's dark half character gives the speech about being born into this darkness and, and incurring endless tragedy whenever her doppelganger experienced any happiness. And, and all of this is told from the perspective of this tethered, soulless person who has been born into this thing and that's not accurate i mean if you want to do a twist you don't have to do it in the last 10 minutes of the movie we could have had the shoe drop then and and her come in and say yeah uh why are you coming after us well you fucking you stole my life (laughs) you know uh but sure sure i i the way they handled it it could theoretically work, but they just mm-hmm. didn't seem to think through it. This movie yeah. has so many half-baked things where... Well, there's just a lot of gears turning at once. Because, yeah, it's like, okay, so she stole her life. But also, it's like just through the very nature of this giant project that creates doppelgangers for people. It's just like all you're doing is stealing life away from people who can clearly live normal lives if given the opportunity to. So, right. yeah, I mean... and. Again, like it's it's messy, but it also makes sense as a messy film because this is like violent revolution through that's led by someone who essentially 
you know, had, had the mind of a five-year-old before she was, you know, sequestered to this underground dwelling where she's just surrounded by these these vegetative clones, more or less. I, I guess that's where my biggest struggle with the movie comes in is that uh, because it's it's such a shaggy dog plot, I start, and it has so many like visible like intended allegories where you start going, okay, he's. He's doing something. He's he's got a message he's trying to tell us. So I I start searching for that message. And again, a lot of this stuff gets undercut by that twist. And a lot of interpretations he could come up with for his grand allegory just kind of go out the window with that twist and and if you were looking at it as sort of a, a violent revolution, a, a classism thing, you know, the the proletariat rising up, but you you would you got to have a lot of issues with the way that the proletariat's portrayed in that instance, where again they are self-described as soulless and they're hyper-violent and seemingly non-verbal in many instances, and you could say, "Well, look, Lupita Nyong'o was one of them, and when she was introduced into proper society, given the opportunity to thrive, she did." But the the counterpoint to that is that the proletariat is led by Lupita Nyong'o, who is uh, not one of them, apparently. She's she's from the upper class, so it took one of them to come down and and show them that she was different and better and mm-hmm. and rise up against it. Bourgeoisie. It's like, okay, uh, mm-hmm. I don't like that. Well, I don't like that the, at all. The, the, other, well, the, the problem there, again, is it's like prior to her getting there, there's not even an indication that, like, the, the, the tethered people even understand, like, what this this earth dwelling upper class is like uh because it's not really detailed other than they just sort of like mimic um the actions of of what's going on above them but i I, it's it's unclear like how conscious they are like from a class standpoint that there's you know that they're doing this for a reason and and it's related to these people who are living better lives than they are I see. I think um, just to sort of zoom out a little bit, um, I think my uh, my personal issue, uh, which is very much like a, a taste distinction, uh, is just like I find it harder to be to be to be enthusiastic about movies that are so much geared around allegories and not just like how how interesting and fun they are in the moment without like, like get out and this make this perfect juxtaposition of things I'm really interested in, in movies and things I'm not. I mean, like I said, us is still a movie that I, I, I consider myself a fan of, but like, uh, because he's so skilled that, it, that, that stuff, like he's so skillful that it overcomes, you know, my, uh, misgivings. You know, if this was made by the hereditary guy, I'd be like, fuck this movie. But um, Get Out is just such an interesting movie all the time and all the moments. Like, the chemistry is there, and, and and it just, like, rolls out just so effortlessly. And something, like, one of my big issues with us is, like, that Lupita Nyong'o and the her husband's name, I can't remember his, his real name for... for at the moment but like they're married and I never got the sense that they actually like had a history together and I mean like I guess 
I guess, you know, I don't know. I guess you could argue, but it would be really lazy to say that, like, <clears throat> she's someone else. But at the same time, they still have a life together. And he believes that, you know, that they're married. Um, but even as a family unit, more largely, I never got this, like, sense that, like, they were this family that existed outside of this movie that existed before the movie started. Um, there wasn't like this time given to that to really develop like something and get out. It just like so full of like so many rich details like that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so while this is like a fun yarn, uh, I was never really drawn into it on that level. Um, but yeah, like I said, a lot of that is taste wise where I was just like, I don't, I, I don't like when I walk out of a movie, that's the, the stuff that I want to keep thinking about are like, you know, um, articulations of themes and not not like puzzle box kind of things, which is kind of the, the distinction I, I got from this. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And but I, see, it's hard for me to classify it as a, as a puzzle box thing, because I don't know it, the way it's constructed. It feels intentionally constructed to not be something that you solve it's just a lot of open space to to you know if you want to theorize theorize if not just kind of you know but then enjoy I, the ride and, and i and i tried not to like theorize i tried to take that route but then like i'm still like what the hell is the stupid flicking of the light thing like what what am i supposed to do with that if if i'm not trying to solve like it's just what is that i don't know what that is <laughs> yeah well, I uh, I don't think I'd call it a puzzle box. It's definitely very allegorical. But I, if you're going to make a puzzle box movie, you better fucking construct it a lot tighter than this thing is. Like, all the pieces need to kind of click in your head to, to get that satisfying feeling. And, and this is... Woo, not that. Uh, it's a movie that... Uh, I don't... I didn't come out with any great mystery other than what the fuck was he trying to do? Because, <laughs> I mean, plot-wise, the whole thing is like... It's one of these movies where the last 20 minutes, they're like, did you wonder what was happening? Here is exactly what was happening. Allow me to show you right. what was happening. And it's like, no, I don't fucking want to see any of this. Right. Yeah, it's too bad we didn't have um, Jack on. I can't remember where Jake... I think Jake is a fan, but um, Jack seems to be much more on your level, Steve. Um, yeah. But, because uh, I feel like... Ah, oh, the one time I want Jack around. <laughs> I feel like it's two against one, but but um, at the same time, you know, I, I, I had... I like. I, I think Byros and I were both, like, at the beginning, I was definitely, like, really zeroed in, and... Um, I just like Sophie and I went to see this and we walked out just kind of both saying like wanted something less high concept. I don't know. I, I'm not, but like I said, a lot of that is taste. Well, it's, it's okay. I'm going to see Jack this weekend. So um, me and him can just talk off mic about how much smarter and better we are than you guys. It'll be fine. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, as much as I sound hard on this movie and I don't think it's a very good movie. And again, I, I know Sean described himself as probably liking Get Out more than us, but if you'll recall, I wouldn't recommend listening to the episode because it's 25 hours long, but in our Oscar cast, I had Get Out listed as my best picture winner that year. I think Get Out is easily like a top 10 American film of the last decade, and uh, yeah. I think it's fantastic, and I wanted to love this movie, and, you know, 10 minutes into the thing, I, you, I would have said, wow, this is going to be 
just fucking amazing. Like the opening credits is just incredible. Oh yeah, and, it's fantastic. Yeah, the whole sequence with the the carnival, the whole thing is it's just great. And I don't know, it, Listen, it totally the, lost me. The one me thing, the one thing we we can all agree on, Tim Heidecker is incredible. This is the role he was born to play. <laughs> I, he's fun. Yeah, he's I, fun. Yeah, I, I really liked him. Oh my god! Especially like I was, I was dying laughing in the theater when uh, his tethered person came out. And he was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> just like doing all of his mannerisms. Yeah, I, I, I lost it at that as well. It. I thought it was great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's kind of talk about something that maybe we could all agree that we enjoyed and this is something that Jack probably didn't enjoy so uh, you know Jack if you're listening fuck you uh, a little bit slower of a film no I think he was a fan oh he liked it everyone liked oh, it oh everyone all, actually wow. liked this movie we're oh my god fans. Uh, we're caught we're talking about Dragged Across Concrete which if you don't like this movie um, find another podcast to listen to I guess <laughs> this is a this is a weird one because if you were to ask me a few years ago like maybe you know Hacksaw Ridge uh, Oscar nomination era uh, if I could ever enjoy a movie with Mel Gibson in it again uh, the answer would be I would probably say hard no but this is a movie where Mel Gibson goes full method acting and plays a racist cop with a mustache, which is, you know, uh, very essential Mel Gibson. And it works because everyone in this film is a completely just deplorable sack of shit. And Mel Gibson is probably the ultimate deplorable sack of shit in this film. So it's it's great. It's it's perfect. <laughs> And and you guys actually enjoyed this one as well, even though I know you were both sort of kind of ho hum on the director's past two movies. Uh, I didn't see Bone Tomahawk. I think actually, Myers and I both com- comprised the the uh, each other's blind spots. Um, right. I did not see Bone Tomahawk, but I saw Brawl on uh, in Cell Block ninety nine off of Jake's recommendation, and I fucking hated it. Um, <laughs> But and and I was like and after listening to a lot of reactions to or a lot of fans of this new one uh, who have been fans of all three, I was like, oh, maybe I just wasn't. Maybe I maybe you know he's somebody that you know if you catch on the wrong day, you you might really not not be ready for. Or if you go in sort of not acclimated, it's it's very easy for many people probably just be like, all right, like just, you know, and you just, I roll your way through it. But, um, after Jack's experience with it, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I need to leave that experience in the past. But, um, so I went into dragged, uh, very cautiously and, mm-hmm. um, I, I was, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think this is the best, marriage of his like writing style and also his directing tendencies and if you look at his his filmography for me it's like each movie is a significant step up from the the previous and with Dragged Across Concrete I I think you could you could say it it could be it's probably without question his his most problematic movie and if you're the kind of person who assumes that someone making a movie about problematic characters is in fact problematic themselves then maybe this is not for you um maybe you should rethink that opinion too while you're at it <laughs> but 
the, the thing that I really appreciate about this movie is it, it is it's like all these character characters are horrible, horrible people, but they're so convincingly horrible. They feel very real to me, and uh, just the the world that they inhabit feels very lived in. And I also love the way that he shoots action in this movie because in Dragged Across Concrete, a lot of times it's just like a stationary camera, mm-hmm. and it kind of naturally builds tension scene to scene just because like what you're watching unfold is kind of happening in real time. And because the camera's not really moving, sometimes, you know, people are obscured or objects are obscured or, you know, what's coming is obscured. All these things are obscured. And so it just kind of creates this natural tension. Uh, Specifically, I think it's most effective towards the end of the movie. And again, if you haven't seen this one, go fire up Netflix or wherever the fuck this is streaming. Um, But it's not. It's not. It's not streaming anywhere. Go uh, borrow it from the internet. It's on VOD. Yeah, via VOD. Go rent a movie from your cable box like a weirdo. Uh, but there's this scene towards the end where they're trying to get rid of some bodies, and um, it, Mel Gibson sort of reluctantly is, is teaming up with this uh, guy who was part of the gang that robbed this bank and because he wants to split the money and yada, 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 plot, plot, plot. But basically, they, neither one of these guys can trust each other, and they shouldn't trust each other. But the camera's set up, and, and all you see is this white SUV, and they're sort of moving bodies around, and they're moving money around, and they're doing all these things. And we know, as viewers, they both have weapons, and they could shoot each other at any moment. So you're just sort of waiting and waiting and waiting. And this scene goes on without any camera movement for probably like a good three, three and a half minutes. So it's the perfect encapsulation of what this film does best. And I can't think of any other directors that really have the ability to make a movie like this yeah uh, yeah he has um he I, I think what you touched on and i'll let myros uh uh speak to his experience in a second but um i think the big thing that is worth talking about here is his style like that's what sets him apart like i think you can get bogged down in talking about sort of the uh quote-unquote like problematic um depictions or characters and things that they say and just sort of ways that he tries to needle um, certain audience members or what have you or just like his idea of what cops are like Um, but uh, what what really drew me in and, and threw me off as somebody who wasn't going in optimistically um he has this beautiful way of of just like withholding things that you expect from an action movie and just framing them the way that he wants to show you an action film or this this sleuthing thing um it's essentially like a 2 hour 40 minute stakeout movie with with some mm-hmm. with some edges to it um some bookends that aren't but um it's just uh it, yeah if 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 you don't get in the heads uh, or if you don't really enjoy the the chemistry between these two protagonists or yeah i guess two protagonists this sort of like a buddy like deranged buddy cop movie um if you don't enjoy their camaraderie which is entirely stiff but that's sort of i, I don't know there's something nice about it and even tender at moments i think for me um but and then that mixed with the stiff way that he is uh framing action these bank robberies and shootouts and stuff it's it's just um 
there's something transfixing about it, even though it's, you know, not just running around trying to, to capture your attention. He's letting you come to the scene. He's letting you get into the scene and sort of just like enjoy it yourself without really having to tell you what to enjoy about it or what's urgent about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, God, I really love Mel Gibson's character in this movie too. And by love, I mean, he's just the biggest garbage human. Uh, but it's, it's great because, you know, a, a lot of times when you have like, Oh, he's the dirty cop and blah, blah, blah. It's easy to make a character like that really one dimensional and, just not particularly interesting past a, a superficial level, but Mel's performance, uh, which is, it's almost an anti-Mel Gibson performance when I think of some of his past roles, but he's, he's pretty subdued in this movie. Uh, and it's great because he's this shitty racist cop who clearly, you know, goes, he crosses the line and abuses his power. Uh, and then they show him as oh he's a family man and his daughter is bullied and his his wife is partially disabled but it's not to to make him a sympathetic character at all because when we look at him as a person we we look at his his partner who has moved up in the police force and and become you know basically like a like a lieutenant or something like that and Mel hasn't gotten a promotion in 27 years and he blames the department and the system and he's just like well people are soft these days and i get results and blah 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 and they just you know they don't respect that and so he blames everyone else instead of actually looking at himself and going like oh i'm a piece of shit and i'm racist and that's why i'm in this bad situation and i'm the reason why my family's in this horrible situation so it subverts this thing that is is normally used in movies to make us go, oh, look, the bad guy, you know, he has a puppy, so maybe he's not so bad. It's like, no, fuck him. He's got a puppy, but he kicks the puppy. Like, he's... <laughs> the this, the other sides that they show of him, it just it shows how selfish and terrible he is as a person. It's it's awesome. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. You, think, you disagree with that? I think you give uh, old S. Craig a little more uh, credit <laughs> than I do. I, I really? think I think a lot of that is in service of humanizing him and and making. I, I think that I think the director likes this character. I think he thinks uh, he, oh, he's oh, the no hero. Way. No he's way. The good okay. guy. Hold on. No, this, because this is this is exactly this is what the the MAGA people do. Is they think they're the good guy, and they're completely incapable of any sort of like self reflection. Or looking outside of themselves and empathizing with anyone in the world. Who the fuck do you think S. Craig Zoller voted for in the last election, I I mean, I I doubt he's a Trump voter. There's no way. I I don't think so. I can't imagine you're correct. I I just can't. This guy's, he's like fucking walking around with a Sam Peckinpah boner just fucking... (laughs) So, Look at this Amira. movie. Why, why does he have these characters do some of these things? And I like this. I think this is a pretty excellent movie. But he, he he's just, he is a MAGA guy. He's a fucking Pepe. He's walking around poking people in the eye for no fucking reason. He's probably in the damn Yang gang. <laughs> no, I, I I don't. No, I See, I don't think so. I think you, you could make the argument if he made any of these characters even remotely sympathetic. But what is, there's no one in this movie has like it's like this balance between like oh you see nice things about them but then as soon as you see one or two nice things you realize there's a thousand other things that make them giant piles of shit and that's everyone in this film basically 
You know, even Vince Vaughn, who you could argue is, is more sympathetic. It's like, well, he's it's like, oh, well, he's uh, he's dating a woman of color. It's like, yeah. And he's also a racist piece of shit. Oh, well, uh, he's trying to get married and he doesn't really want to be a part of this whole, you know, uh, robbery thing and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, no, it's he go, he knows exactly what he's getting into. He brings a fucking sniper rifle with him. Like all of these people know exactly what they're doing and they just try and throw pity parties for themselves. But they're just trash people. See, I think that the director has an affinity for both of these cop characters. And I, I think that there's a reason that the opening scene uh, where they get in trouble for overstepping is not in, in traditional S. Craig Zoller fashion, uh, like wildly violent. It's kind of a very subtle, uh, you really kind of grinded a little too hard into that thing so so it, it's helped it's got this little shade of oh did he go over the line did he not is he a racist is he just doing his job uh and then when they show the villain he's like fucking walking around blasted people with a machine gun and like hanging a fucking sombrero over a hispanic guy's corpse or something it's like okay I, there's I also like the um there's also the the black kids in the beginning dumping the soda do you remember I, this i yeah, yeah yeah that when they uh attacked his daughter uh, yeah and they assume the absolute worst is gonna happen to her um yeah i don't i don't really know what to to do with those parts um i don't I, i'm I don't, okay with it i mean what yeah, action yeah. cinema has a rich tradition of being fucking right wing as shit sure and that's all right yeah i mean i i guess like i i don't come now, like in now as a fan or as i was getting sucked into this movie it wasn't looking for like the moral compass in the movie um and I, I think it's interesting that we, that you both can have like these different reads on them. Um, I've yet to, to to hear one from somebody and be like, "That's exactly what I believe." Um, is his point of view about that? There's some. There's a. There's a lot going on in this movie um, in terms of like w- what happens to certain types of people, you know, outside of the main action, uh, stuff that happens at the end and, and sort of what Craig Zoller's worldview is, uh, seems, seems I will com- say that <sighs> I, I, I thought you were rapping, sorry, Sean. Uh, I will say that I think this is kind of like the perfect marriage of material and director because, what I, I enjoy a lot of Zeller's influences, but I haven't really. Enjoyed, I mean, I can tell you without watching it that I will not like Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine. But I, I thought Bone Tomahawk was not good at all, and it, it's perfectly in my wheelhouse. But it's just a pacing disaster. It's just like the back half of that movie is almost unwatchable. <laughs> And the pace, this the pace movie, here is just delightful, I thought. Right, and it's a 160-minute movie. I was just dreading watching this. I'm like, why, why <laughs> With very little camera movement, this? too. It's, I, I have no idea. Well, especially when we were, I mean, we were talking about like Marvel movies earlier and how fucking long they are. And just think of the rapid pace of those films, and yet they drag sometimes. Uh, or, or, God, like Shazam today, I was just like, whoa, Jesus. And, you know, there's shit blowing up every three seconds in Shazam. 
And with this movie, it's like, nah, the camera's not going to move. It's, they're just going to do a stakeout for 15 minutes, and, and somehow it just works. Yeah, uh, and again, he's the director who I would say uh, the bulk of us would agree that he has struggled in the past greatly with pacing. Oh, and, yeah. And that is why this is kind of such a, a miracle for me, because it's just two guys sitting in a car after the fucking movie, and it, it works really well. It's a very compelling launch. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I, you know, we, we saw a couple other things in the theater, too. Um, at this point, though, I'm convinced that this is where I'm at in, in 2019. Am I, am I ever going to see a movie in the theater in 2019 that actually, like, just really floors me? Um, I mean, I, I, li- I liked Us, but other than that, I just feel like everything has been either disappointing or just god-awful on a level I, I could not have predicted. And, uh, Myros, you saw the new, the new Pet Cemetery, right? And, and this is a movie that it had a good trailer, so it's, it's got to be at least, like, functional, fun horror for, you know, multiplex evening, right? It's, it's fine, right? Just barely, I guess. <laughs> so this is right in line with everything else I've seen in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it depends what your expectation is with with Pat Cemetery. If you're a fan of the original movie, uh, not right. Neither uh, am I. Don't go down by the road now. Union Bell growl. Or trucks come by. And uh, well, that's the it, only good part. If you don't have Herman Munster, just marble mouthing through half the movie uh not interested well i thought this might be okay because they had lithgow in the herman munster rule I'm like, well, that could be fun but he's he's cashing a check <laughs> he's not doing much of anything here yeah um yeah i don't know it i'm not a fan of that that film either i think it's not very good and uh i'm long past the age where i read stephen king but i i used to read it pretty voraciously you know, in my early teens, and I would say Pet Cemetery is is among my very favorite of his novels. I think it's very effective Lovecraftian horror. I think it's a, a legitimately scary read, which is not something I I think I've experienced frequently with King. Um, mm-hmm. And the movie, the original film, did not really capture that at all. So it's one of those things where, unlike it, which is pretty terrible literature frankly but uh i was like oh yeah there's material here they could make something better out of this but this movie is made by someone who loves that bad 80s version and uh is it's basically the same movie again except there's like two things in it where they expect there well i guess three separate instances where they're like oh you saw that original movie you think you know what's about to happen but we're gonna get you and so instead of uh the son gage being killed by the truck now it's it's his older sister who was killed by the truck gage is, is saved at the last minute by the father so they subvert oh. your expectations by killing this the other child oh and it, oh, who uh, cares? What what is what bearing does that have on anything? No, nothing, nothing. It's just at all. like a little nudge for people who care about the bad movie from the eighties. Is that well? Is the, that what it is? And the, or the book, I guess. Not even the book. I, I mean, the same situation as the original film happens in 
in the book, I suppose. But this is definitely geared toward the movie. Like, the setup's all just the same fucking thing. But the problem with that is all the characterization goes to the older sister because Gage is a toddler and mm. barely verbal. So you kind of like when when the, the toddler comes back and is threatening the character that they've they've bothered to develop that that can be compelling. You have someone to root for here. Sure. The character who you're rooting for is the zombie or whatever. <laughs> so it's strange. It's a strange choice. The other That's being there's a very fine. famous uh, kill in the uh, original film with uh, where Herman Munster gets his Achilles tendon slit. And in this film, he also gets his Achilles tendon slit, but they do this total fucking bullshit fake out that's like the exact shot from the first movie where Gage comes from under the bed and slits his th- uh, Achilles tendon, so the camera's just like hovering on his fucking ankle, uh, and he just like kicks the bed out, uh, and there's nothing there. And then he takes like three steps and immediately gets his Achilles tendon cut. It's like, oh, well, you really got me. But the the biggest departure is the end of the film, which is not an improvement. I'll say that because the the whole film is a meditation on grief. I mean, contrary to what Vice would have you believe, this is yet another horror movie that deals with grief. Um, and uh, you could even classify it as a, a sort of slasher. But uh, yeah, so the the movie ends with. The father having brought back his son, who is monstrous, and kills his wife, essentially. And uh, so the the film ends, and the book ends, with the, with the father still unable to uh, move forward and, and process his grief. And he buries his wife in the Indian burial ground. And the last shot of, of both is essentially the wife coming back while he's playing a game of solitaire and this movie the daughter kills the mother as as it happens i suppose and immediately drags her up to the indian burial ground and buries her and then the the wife and the daughter then kill the protagonist uh jason clark and drag him up to the indian burial ground and the movie ends with three, like, shambling zombies, like, fucking coming to get Gage in the SUV. Oh That's God. incredibly stupid. Does that does, does that really highlight the, the whole grief theme some, in some way? I, I'm not getting it, I guess. But. That's, wow. That's really boneheaded. Great. And it, it, looks, it looks bad. I mean, it's, it's just a really blandly shot film. It's cheap. You don't it's, say... It's from the the directors, co-directors who had a pretty prominent uh, crowdfunding horror movie called Starry Eyes a few years back, mm-hmm. uh, which is okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, and this is kind of their big break in Hollywood, but they didn't do much with it. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds like a lot of just terrible decisions. And it's, it's, it's uh, writer-director of... Starry Eyes? Like, is he in both roles here, too, or is he just working with the script that he was given? Well, Starry Eyes has two co-directors who uh, co-wrote Starry Eyes as well, but neither of them were involved in the writing of 
okay. uh, Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery so was written to... by hacks. It was written by people involved in such films as uh, Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Uh, uh, what else we have here? Reign of Fire. We have uh, this uh, the earlier uh, Dumpyberry film, The Prodigy. Mm. Uh, and what else we have? So no, I, I'm, and I'm guessing their know. studio notes were just like, make a few meaningful changes that will, you know, get people on like bloody disgusting.com and dread central and, you know, fanboy megaboner.gov to just get excited about, Oh, look at this little Easter egg moment. Yeah. Having I, watched yeah. the film, I would not be at all surprised if the writers had not even read the book, if they just literally watched is, I mean, it's pretty the long. 80s film. They could have just watched <laughs> the, the the earlier film and said, well, uh, let's just use this exact script and, and scribble out a few things and write oh in some uh, subversions. That'll get the audience. Basically, yeah. I think the studio notes were, it made a lot of money. Let's throw this out there. How do you think studios are going to deal with the uh, the uh, how do you, how do you think the studio is going to deal with the second it movie because that's that's coming out that's a thing and I believe the second half of it uh, if I'm not mistaken is the child orgy section of the book. Uh God, if I can fucking remember any of that, they like get together and have kid sex and beat a giant spider or something. Yeah, and then after that they grow up, and then there's other stuff that happens. But yeah, so hopefully that part gets cut out because that's kind of weird. Yeah, the, the second splitting that movie is an interesting decision. Probably narratively makes sense, but uh, because the book is impossibly long. But well, and I, I'm going to fall back on on my classic line of thought, which is instead of splitting the movie, what if you don't make it? Yeah, that'd be great, because it is really not a good text. It, it, it is very problematic, and also, the problem they're going to run into is that the portions, even if you go back and you have these nostalgia goggles for that fucking shitty 90s miniseries with Tim mm-hmm. Curry, try watching anything where they're adults. It's like the fucking worst shit on Earth, and yeah. that that's going to be the problem. All the fucking characters are terrible as adults. It, it's fine to watch like a little Stand By Me thing, but good fucking luck with this second half. Also, just yeah. watch the old thing. Just, I don't want, this is another thing. And well, don't watch the old thing either, because that also well, sucks. No, See, this, this is all this nostalgia is... stuff, because everyone who's going to see it now was, like, relatively young when the original TV series came out, and all they remember is I was like below the age of twelve, and Tim Curry as a clown was scary. Which yeah, right. Tim Curry is good as the the you know it the clown, but other than that, it's horrible. It's complete trash. There's nothing good about it. All you remember is being scared as a kid because he's a creepy ass clown. There's nothing else to that movie. Burn I, it all to the ground. I mean, uh, as an across the board maxim. If that if you if you're looking for the new thing to be like the old thing, watch the old thing. Yeah, that's the big problem the with Pet thing. Cemetery. It's like the old thing's not that good, but and the source material is pretty good. They could make something good out of that, but they they mm-hmm. fucking didn't. It, this is made for people who like the old movie, and and in that case, just as Sean said, if you like that movie so much, fucking watch it. Yeah, go watch it. No, you know, everyone has fucking brain worms, and y- you can't just enjoy the old thing. You need you need the new thing that 
pays homage to your that everyone thing. is watching together yeah and then people get excited about it and then it, it's like it's this whole like weird like late capitalism mindset where you just like you get super invested as a person in just like a brand and that's that's what all these people are like. a lot of horror people sci-fi people fanboy people that's what they do they just they feel like attached to these things and it kind of divorces the thing from any artistry and it's it's gross. It's stupid. Go go watch the Herman Munster. That's that's the best version of Pet <laughs> Cemetery. It's not even good. Deep down, you know it's not good, even though that that particular role is pretty good. But uh, yeah, God, what, none of this needs to exist. <laughs> uh, we also saw well besides Cuff because he he was like, I can't wait to see Shazam. Uh, <laughs> we, we saw Beach Bum, Harmony Corinne's new film. Oh yeah, I forgot. I, I thought we were wrapping up. I'm like, yeah, we still got Beach Bum. Is is this going to be the one that uh, saves multiplex movies for me in 2019? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. It is interesting though. Um, I think me and Myros again are kind of on the same page on this one, which is a film that uh, could go either way. Like, I think Cuff, you might like it more than us. I, I know. Uh, uh, Jake really liked it. Jack is kind of where we're at, but um, it's it's one of those things where I don't really know what somebody. A, a lot of people when they go in to see, I, I I wouldn't be able to guess whether they're going to love it or just be like, eh. and um, yeah, because there is stuff to enjoy, and it's just kind of like how much mileage you get out of that is is going to mm-hmm. is really going to vary per person. But because uh, I mean, it's a. It, it's a irrefutably, I would think, a dumb movie about dumb stuff. But at the same time, it it's a dumb movie trying to be a dumb movie. Like so, on a level, it's quite successful. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that it exists. I'll say yeah. that. <laughs> I don't know that I love the film, uh, but, uh, there were, it's fun. I had fun watching it. it it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's I got standard Harmony Corinne, uh, Corinne problems where it just at some point is like the same scene, like mm-hmm. 12 times in a row. And you're like, God, fucking damn it, man. I get that you're doing this on purpose. And it's another director who's really interested in poking me in the eye, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there, there's a segment in this movie, there's, well, a stretch in the movie where I, I started to go like, I don't know how much more of this I can fucking take. But um, for those not aware, Beach Bum is a movie uh, wherein Matthew McConaughey plays a uh, very acclaimed uh, poet who essentially lives like a, a crazed homeless man. He just he's like wanders around. Out, the- <laughs> uh, to, like he's like a blissed out uh, S. Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, he he basically just wanders around Southern Florida uh, on various drugs and alcohol, like being. I, I don't imagine McConaughey had to stretch his legs too much on this, but I'm guessing it's like <laughs> an exaggerated well, this, this version like, of Matthew McConaughey. This is the perfect movie to uh, encapsulate like a, the cultural moment. This is, um, you know, a lazy idiot fails forward, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like there's also shades of of the riffraff alien, the the. The riff oh, yeah. riff, riff uh, sure. alien, uh, but again, much 
much. Dude, uh, side note. Yeah. Have Have you been paying attention to what Riff Raff's been up to lately? Because it's awesome. Isn't he like a sex offender? Uh, well, that part's not awesome if that's true. But the part that's awesome is, <laughs> I guess, some at some point after Spring Breakers came out, and there was that, like, you know, gangly uh, James Franco riff yeah. riff. Alien. Alien, yeah. He, like, he was he, he was doing, like, a shitload of drugs and, and whatnot, and uh, it was starting to affect his, his performances, which is, uh, it's you know, that's troubling for all the Riff Raff fans out there. So he decided that the only way that he could stop just snorting cocaine and getting drunk nonstop is if he took up weightlifting. So now all he does <laughs> it's is like just... Top. Yeah, that's exact. That, that's what he looks like. He looks like Carrot Top with, like, braids now. And he, he's a crazy person. Like, Vice did, like, a little, like, mini video on him or something. And... He has to work out like three times a day so he doesn't do cocaine. And while he's working out, he's got like an extra large, like quadruple espresso, like Starbucks. He's just slamming this Starbucks cup nice. while he's like running on a treadmill and then like lift deadlifting and shit. And then he goes to a restaurant and orders like nine entrees, eats all of them, and then goes back to his hotel, like works out again. It's well, this sounds it's this amazing. Sounds very much like Vice content, which Vice uh, was a producer. Um, Vice Studios is a producer uh, on Beach Bum. That makes sense. Well, um, I, I would assume based on the Beach Bum trailer, I think about like I, I think maybe like seventy to eighty percent of at least the upper management at Vice, all of them are pretty much the Beach Bum character, right? Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 there is something interesting, like. Um, when the, the movie opens on him reading this poem, and uh, as Sophie uh, pointed out, it's a Richard Brodigan poem, a, a poet who is kind of on the outskirts of the beat. He he, he is kind of better than most of them, uh, but sort of the San Francisco uh, beatnik that that wasn't in the same circle. But um, yeah, he reads. Yeah, his, he wrote. Uh, oh God, what what is he wrote the, the abortion. abortion and then yeah. what was the other one? Trout fishing like in fish. America. Yeah. yeah, trout fishing in America. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, he was he, he was good, but um, so he the 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 movie Beach Bum is like bookended with a Brodigan poem, but it's never it's never pronounced that that's Brodigan. He steals it and um, and he talks also elsewhere about uh, his, the the privileges of of being a successful plagiarist, and that's kind of. I read the movie as Harmony Corinne sort of being able to being able to make something that means absolutely nothing, but have it be of some value. I don't know. No, I, I, maybe that sounds condescending, and I don't. I don't think that that's that's not my point. But like being able to make these movies that you know we're going to see and they're out there that that people will program at their multiplex and get these big stars and just like sort of like pull the wool over i guess hollywood's eyes and just make something that's mm -hmm. really it's really nothing or you know it's this hedonistic fun time or whatever um and, and about a character that really he doesn't have anything to say and yet he he has sort of like a lot of virtues and i mean he there's also some, some sadness in his life but um uh he, he falls back ass backwards into all this money and he doesn't even care about the money and and it seems very much to be a cathartic piece of cinema for for harmony korean and i guess like i said your mileage just varies based on how much you like harmony korean and how much you like that and how much but also like 
like Myra said, like there's so much stuff that just keeps going. Like there's a stupid weed tree that's like that's like out of like if Vice made Twin Peaks, this is like the tree character. You know, it's like in this weird room, mm-hmm. and they just keep going to it, and it's just Snoop Dogg plays Snoop Dogg basically, and it's just like it's not funny after a while or like I think the first like 20 minutes is a real drag like it's just kind of like this like uh, you know um, this super high like Malik type of stuff where some of the images look good but it's like I, I'm just done seeing this uh, twirling around this character going back and forth to this character just kind of like in a daze and it's, it, it loses momentum pretty quickly but fortunately it picks up as things happen but yeah I, I, I don't have a lot of I, I don't care that much about what he's saying in between those marks or, or him as a him as a filmmaker i don't think he has a lot of technique to offer that's interesting um but he has some good pieces of characterization see i almost had the opposite reaction as far as like the pacing of the movie like i was more on board at the beginning because it seems more pointed at the, at that stage uh it it seemed aimed at this sort of florida keys scuzzbag bullshit uh, with up to Jimmy it including <laughs> like Bertie Higgins and Jimmy Buffett both being in the movie and performing songs for some reason and I you know I get in that spring break frame, uh, spring breakers frame of mind where I'm like okay I see what he's going for which I'm kind of glad it wasn't like just a, a total rehash of what he was doing there but I actually kind of really enjoy the technique he employs in that sort of film, which is again, something that I feel like he employed less successfully, which is kind of like overlaid audio, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive stuff. And it it all served a a greater purpose in spring breakers. And it, it doesn't at all here. I would say I it's, it devolves very at at a certain point. It devolves It, it when it decides it needs to have a, plot essentially where it's just like and now uh our hero must fucking finish his book in order to claim his fortune and Corinne is having fun with it it's overlaid with like the fucking score of like a 1992 family film or something and it's just the dumbest fucking shit you'll ever see in your life like anti-comedy level like Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie level, just like fucking Jesus Christ, dumb, dumb, dumb bullshit that it, it sometimes it hits and sometimes it's like, my God, how much more of this can I tolerate? And that that's been a common experience for me with anti-comedy in feature length. I I can ingest it a lot better in a, a 20 minute doses. Well, I, I'm just happy that, you know, it's it's 2019. Harmony Korine's got a, a a movie in multiplexes. That this isn't even like art house theater. Like AMC is carrying this uh, in Wisconsin. The Marcus theaters are carrying this. It's like the biggest theater chain in in Wisconsin. Like this is a a wide release film. And I, I thought he pulled a fast one back when he released Spring Breakers because it looked like one thing, and then you you go into it and it quickly turns into something else. Um, and then I figured, well, that was his, his one chance to kind of, you know, stick his tongue out at Hollywood and give the middle finger and screw some people over who may or may not have actually watched the film they were releasing. But 
he's done it again, and I don't know how, but I, I'm glad this movie is available for people to see. And I just, I really hope that people just see Matthew McConaughey and think that it's a movie about like parrot heads or something, and then some, you know, hot dog skin dad uh, just wanders in and is appalled by what he watches. Yeah, that's God, my hope. God bless Harmony Corinne. I don't know why this is fucking happening. I, I, it was a miracle when Spring Breakers came out. I, I talk about a theater experience. I reveled in every second of watching. Oh, it was great. Uh, watching all the fucking teeny boppers' hearts shatter into a thousand pieces. This movie fucking ruined their lives. Uh, yeah. The, this is not nearly as subversive as that. And I haven't seen much marketing for it, but I don't know what they could be pushing it as. Maybe like a weed comedy or something. But yeah, I guess so. I, I it's just insane to me that this I don't have any idea what this is doing in theaters. Why anyone thinks this is a, a movie that is marketable to anyone? But God bless him. God bless. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I think we should probably wrap things up. So, Myros, can you please put something over for me? Uh, yeah. So I watched something recently that I hated, and it made me want to put over. <laughs> so now you're gonna put it over something that I like better. Uh, again, just watch the old thing. But I I watched season two of Amazon's The Tick. Uh and it's fucking awful. Like I I keep reading. Th- good things about it and i'm like getting angry i'm like no there are no good things about it it i didn't even hate the first season of it. i thought it was like didn't really nail the tone of of the comic or or the cartoon and and that's fine it was going for its own thing but it's still it was still kind of funny it had some clever things to say about modern superhero movies and everything you read about the season two is like, it's finally found its footing and it's off to the races. And I watched it. I was like, what the fuck? It's just, you might as well be watching a Marvel movie, except with the 10th of the budget. It's it's just shitty and boring and hard to watch. So what I'll, I'll say is, is just fucking watch the old thing. Yeah, you may recall watching it on your Saturday wait, wait, mornings we talking uh, as a child. Cartoon watch, or... Watch... Or s- are we no, talking cartoon no. or or Patrick Warburton? Oh, we're talking cartoon, baby. The cartoon is vastly superior to the Warburton. The Warburton is oh, okay. is kind of an interesting curiosity, but it's very much the post Seinfeld high concept sitcom, and it, yeah. it's it's not amazing by any stretch. But the cartoon, cartoon's great. It's fucking awesome. It, it's so much better than everything that aired around it. A lot of people have these weird nostalgia goggles for like those Marvel cartoons, like X Men. If you watch that now, it's perhaps <laughs> the worst animated thing that has ever existed in the history people of mankind. Have, people uh, have the Batman one. The Batman one—that's le- legit good. But uh, here we are talking about something that's a lot funnier. It's basically the proto Venture Brothers from the '90s. Just go watch. The tick. It's excellent. All right. Sean, how about you? What do you got to put over? Uh, I will put over uh, Berlin Alexander Platz uh, because I because I watched it, uh, so I feel like I should get as pants. much as much. Yeah, fancy pants. Um, 
I, I watched that to, to review it and uh, uh, and it took me 15 hours um, but that makes it sound like it was a strain um, it's very good uh, but it's a uh, German and Italian TV production from 1980 uh, from Rainer Werner Fassbinder and it's uh, based on this novel but it's just about a guy who gets out of prison in late 20s Berlin and is trying to make a better life for himself and and that is proving harder than than uh, than he at first thought um, and so it's just about this sort of like dopey naive man's life in, in late 20s Berlin but it's this beautiful uh, 13 part um, TV miniseries and it's available on the new Criterion channel oh my are you getting paid to make that plug no. Are you, are you a show for criteria? Okay, sure thing. <laughs> I swear. Maybe he's reached like quartz, quartz on the on the gem scale. Oh uh, yeah, maybe quartz there. <laughs> yeah, what's what's your gem hardness on this one, Sean? What are you putting over, Steve? Uh, I, I'm glad you asked, Sean. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm putting over the Optimism Vaccine Podcast Network, which people should rate and review on iTunes because God, we we need them. We need them bad. If you haven't done it, then um, it's, I don't know what to say. You're, getting, you're not getting a Christmas card this year from me, I'll tell you that much. Uh, actually, the other thing I want to put over is, as you know, me and Myros, we do the show Cost of Content, where we find the absolute worst things that are streaming uh, on the, one of the various streaming channels, and we try and pit them against each other to try and find the worst thing humanly possible that is readily available for anyone to you know consume out there. And nine times out of ten, that stuff comes from Amazon because... It's the wild, wild west of, of streaming services on Amazon. You can really put anything up there. And recently, a bunch of old, like, 80s and 90s, um, like, made-for-TV movies popped up. And <laughs> there are some some real interesting things. Uh, <laughs> I watched one called Children of the Bride, uh, where Patrick Duffy is, like, he's he's banging Rue McClanahan, who's one of the Golden Girls. And the whole, like, the whole plot of the movie is, isn't it weird that handsome young Patrick Duffy is like laying some pipe in the Golden Girl? It's, it's really bizarre. It's, it's terrible. But another curiosity that I watched that was absolutely fantastic, and uh, shout out to Susan for discovering this one. It's called Death of a Cheerleader. And I would genuinely recommend that if you are interested in just schlocky made-for-TV movies, that you watch this because it is a master class in everything that you would ever associate with a dumb made-for-TV like after-school special. So it's about Tori Spelling and uh, a group of cool girls, and then there's an outsider girl, and she kind of maneuvers her way into the cool girl group, but then, you know, the, the, the pressure of being a cool girl gets to her, and she ends up stabbing the shit out of Tori Spelling, uh, which is amazing, by the way. It, just an incredible scene, because you know the, the sex scene in Showgirls, where Jesse Spano kind of, like, flops like a fish? You guys familiar uh, with that? Yes. Uh. Yeah. Okay, so Tori Spelling does that, but instead of sex in a pool, it's Tori Spelling, like, just seizuring in the grass, and it's, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Uh, but the whole movie is amazing. There's a goth girl that it, it was like clearly written by someone who's like 85 years old and just like read about goth in, in a newspaper. Everyone who's playing a teenager here is like 40 years old. It's it's perfect. It's beautiful. 
It is God's most precious movie, and I highly recommend that everybody watch it. Ooh, it also Streaming has, on it has, also has Uncle Phil. Oh, yeah, it's got Uncle That's That part is awesome, too, because you don't even see it coming. He's got this little minor role, and then you look down for one second, you look back up, and there's fucking Uncle Phil's just standing in the room. And he's only in the movie for like five minutes. He just he plays like an FBI investigator who just shows up. It's and incredible. also fucking Terry O'Quinn, the stepfather himself. <laughs> yep, yep. This is a stacked uh, cast. It's it's a very stacked cast, and there's all kinds of like weird like moralizing stuff that goes on. There's this whole like Jesusy subplot that doesn't make any sense in the context of the film. It's just it's so good. Oh, and, so so good. And Steve, in keeping with the theme of this uh, episode of the Outback Cast, uh, I just want to encourage our listeners to watch the old one because they have apparently remade this film this very year. So, Are you uh, serious? Yes. They remade Death of a Cheerleader? <laughs> this is a Lifetime Death of a Cheerleader. Oh, my God. Uh, There's no way it's... Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's that's the theme. This is perfect. Let's pretend like I uh, intentionally did this. But, yeah, watch the old one. The new one's no good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyways, uh, again, make sure that you, you rate and review us on iTunes right now. There's a link in the description of this very podcast. Uh, Sean, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at Mr. Glynis on Twitter. You can also find me at Sean Glynis on Letterboxd. Yeah. Um, and, hey, you can't find Myros anywhere. Um, you know, look him up in the in the white pages or something, I guess. Mail him a letter. Uh, if you want to contact me, though, it's at Steve Cuff on Twitter. That's at Steve Cuff, C-U-F-F. And, uh, hey, I'm the same thing on Letterboxd, too. If you want to see me um, write one-word reviews of everything that I watch, uh, and other than that, if you want to hit us up uh, at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter, and somebody will probably get around to saying something back to you. And if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Send them all that way. And uh, maybe maybe Myros will, will read those. That, that can be the way that you communicate with the people, Myros. Yeah, I occasionally sift through our thousands of spam emails. Uh, there you go. We'll so send send all your hate mail to Myros via our email address. And uh, hey, that, that about wraps things up. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.